did it, we will stand back up in just a moment or so as we read a portion of the sermon text for tonight. But let me give you just a few introductory comments to what we're trying to do in this new series in the evening that we are calling That Old Gospel Story. So if you've been with us at Redeemer for any length of time, our normal pattern in the morning and evening service is not simply just to walk through books of the Bible from beginning to end, but it's also that the morning and evening sermon series would be complementary. They'd be opposite testaments, different genres within the scripture. And what we're doing over the coming months is going to give you something of an Old Testament survey through famous stories that give us clear shadows and types of Jesus Christ, hence that old gospel story. Because if you were with us in recent years, you might remember in the morning service, really up until last summer, uh, we had walked for a significant amount of time through the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus. And instead of turning to a sermon series length study of Leviticus in the evening, what I wanted to do was essentially take you from Leviticus over the coming months, probably into January of next year, uh, Leviticus really to certain prophets to help you understand not just how the story of God in the Old Testament advances, but try to help you understand how so much of the New Testament is utterly impossible to understand without these stories in the Old Testament. And so you might recall significant stories in Jesus' own ministry. For example, think of one from John chapter 5. He's, he's talking in his normal way in his ministry, and he's speaking about himself in a way that's got the Jews all riled up. In particular, in that context, they're angry because he's saying he's equal with God. And then later on in the chapter, he begins to defend himself, call upon witnesses to his divine identity. And in verse 38 of John chapter 5, he says, You search the scriptures, believing that in them you find eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. Of course, students, you would understand when Jesus says you search the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. And he says, these scriptures bear witness about me. Or perhaps the end of Luke's gospel after his resurrection and before his ascension, uh, Jesus is walking with these disciples on the road to Emmaus and he opens their eyes to all of those key stories in the Old Testament that testify of who he is. And so that's really what we're going to be doing throughout the fall and again, Lord willing, into early next year, taking these famous stories. Kids, you're going to know most of them. Famous stories, events, and figures from the Old Testament to try to show you how it's sketching out for us something of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to turn tonight to what I told my children earlier this week was one of the most famous chapters in all the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16. And they looked at me rather quizzically, thinking, what's the famous chapter in Leviticus, but I'm sure many of you will understand what we're meant to see tonight with the Day of Atonement. So in, in a summary fashion, we're going to work through the chapter, uh, but let, let's stand together as I just want to get us going uh, by reading the first six verses in Leviticus 16 to give you a sense of this great day in the nation of Israel's life. So let me read those six verses for us and pray and we'll begin. So here now is God is speaking to you through his wonderful word. Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, 
before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist, and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water, and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and his house. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we rejoice even this night as you have given us the opportunity to peer ever more into the wondrous glories and riches of mercy that are found in Jesus Christ. We ask that your spirit would open our eyes to behold the wonderful good news that atonement for our sins is found in your Son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. All of us know instinctually, don't we, that days often mark our year. Significant, central days often mark our year. You know, kids, if I was to ask you over the next year, 12 months, what what days are you looking forward to the most? Some of you kids might say, well, I'm looking forward to my birthday. Others of you might say, I'm looking forward to a particular holiday. I think growing up for me, I would look forward most to the last day of school. There are good days that you can look forward to. And there certainly, as even children, days that mark your life perhaps in a negative way. For me growing up, that was the first day of school. It was always the worst day of the year. Some of you children are perhaps enjoying that first day of school last week or the coming week. But as you get older, you know still, don't you, even as an adult, as decades advance, that significant days mark your year. Sometimes they're happy days, like perhaps a wedding anniversary. Sometimes they're hard days, like the memory of a loved one dying on that particular day years ago. Not only is it true that days mark our life, It's very true that days define our life. And if you were to ask an ancient Israelite, what is the most important day of the week? They would say to a person, I'm sure, the Sabbath is the most important day of the week. Now, if you were to ask him, what's the most important day of the year? I think universally they would say it is Yom Kippur, the the day of atonement. One scholar says it's without a doubt That the Day of Atonement lies at the very heart of Israel's calendar and existence. And it's that day that we want to turn our attention to tonight. And I wonder what you know about the book of Leviticus. If perhaps a friend was to come up to you or or children you were going to ask your parent, well, what's Leviticus all about? You know, how would you answer that? I think the ordinary experience of many Christians is they might set out early on in the year to go through one of those read through the Bible in a year plans. And it's somewhere late in the spring you get to Leviticus and all these case laws after one another, after one another. And you begin to think, oh, what do all of these delineated demands have to do with me? And you can lose steam. But you need to know that Leviticus, it does pick up the story 
Although the people of Israel just stay in one spot. It picks up the story from where Exodus ended. Now, students, you might remember how Exodus ends. Chapter 40, after Moses carefully and obediently builds the tabernacle, God's dwelling place, it's at the end of Exodus that God's glory now finally comes to dwell and reside with his people. Leviticus picks up the story in answering this question. How is it that a holy and glorious God can dwell in the presence of a sinful people? And in many ways, it's perhaps overly generalized, but it's true. All of Leviticus is doing in all of the laws is saying this is how a holy God dwells with a sinful people. And not only is it central to the book of Leviticus as a whole, chapter 16, it was already central to the nation of Israel's life, this this day of atonement. It, It lies at the very core and center of this book, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. So we're wanting to look at tonight this story of atonement in brief, and it's giving us this gospel truth, this this main idea, that sinners can only dwell in God's presence if their sins are atoned for. Or maybe said a different way, atonement is the only possible way for sinners to dwell in God's presence. And if you just kind of glance through the Bible that might be open in front of you right now, you'll notice that there's no small number of commands in our text, 34 verses, but I want to give you the central themes that you're going to find in this passage. I want you to see, first of all, the priest, then I want you to see the problem before we spend most of our time on the provision, because that's really where the chapter focuses almost all of God's instruction on, on the provision for atonement. But let's see what we can understand about the priest who makes atonement on that great day of old. So look again, verse 1, chapter 16. It's context for our text. Uh, We're told that Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And I hope you know that story of Nadab and Abinahu, or what we Texans would call Nadab and Abihu, in Leviticus chapter 10, when they did what? They offer strange fire to the Lord coming into his presence to worship him. And it was irregulated, uncalled for worship. And what happened? God struck him dead. So it's telling us right away, isn't it, from the very outset, uh, this, this passage is dealing with how can sinners come into God's presence and not die? Well, here's how. Notice what we're told in verse 3. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. With a bull from the herd as a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Verse 4, he shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarments on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. And if you don't know much about priestly clothing at the time, it might not strike you in the way it's meant to strike you in a way that it would have early Israelites. Because the normal priestly clothing that the high priest would wear when he's going about his priestly duties was quite fanciful. It was quite bright and colorful. Lots of blues, lots of reds, golds on the ephod, gold on the turban. It was something that spoke about the royalty, the dignity, and the beauty that belonged to his office. Uh, But here, if you read it in the context of the whole passage, he's going to come into the tent of meeting. He's going to take off the fanciful garments, and because this is a day of great solemnity, because this is a day of great gravity, 
The, the kind of clothing required is that of noticeable humility, plain linen. It would have been altogether striking to an early Israelite to see this high priest, the one who intercedes for God's people, strip himself of dignity and royalty to take on the clothes of, of humility. And I hope you see already right from the outset, a certainly a, a striking picture of Jesus Christ who himself clothed in royalty and dignity. Did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but took on the clothes of a servant, clothing of humility, even in his estate of humiliation, being obedient to God unto the point of death and his priestly service. Uh, the priest is going to go about making various offerings. Aaron, the high priest in our text specifically, and he's going to go about making those offerings because there's a problem. So I want you to see how, towards the middle of the chapter, it talks about the problem. Kids, you might think about this as, why is atonement necessary? That's really what the second part is answering. Earlier this week, we were driving around, or I was. Emily was working at the hospital. I was driving around with the kids in our van, and I heard a squeak. And I am one of those people that hears every squeak and rattle in the car. And uh, even Emily, when we were first dating together, she said something to the effect of me one time. She said, you know, I never used to hear squeaks and rattles in a car, and now I hear them all the time. Because I hear them and send someone to investigate the squeak and the rattle so that we can suppress the squeak and the rattle. Something was squeaking in the car, and so I instructed one of the kids. I said, hey, get up, unbuckle, and figure out what's squeaking and make it stop. He started searching around, and as you can perhaps experience and understand in a van like that, he kind of moves to the middle row, and, oh, it's right here, and then he realizes, oh, that's not it, and then he goes kind of to the back corner, oh, I found it, Dad, it's right here, and, well, that's not it, too, and this went on for a few minutes for him to be able to identify the problem, and eventually he did, and we were able to deal with the problem, certainly for an early Israelite. There's no difficulty in identifying the problem on the Day of Atonement. Everyone knew exactly what the problem was. If you skip your attention ahead, notice verse 16. God commands of Aaron, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Why? Because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. And now skip down to verse 21. It's talking about him confessing over this goat all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. Students, surely you note, even in verse 21, that threefold volley of all. All their iniquities, all their transgressions, all their sins. Why was the Day of Atonement utterly necessary? Because mankind is utterly sinful. I wonder how often you think about Sin. I tend to think that many Christians think often about sin, but usually the sin of other people, usually the sin of other churches, usually the sin of other nations, when in a way that would have been altogether arresting to the original Israelite civilian, there on the Day of Atonement, you get this catechism of sorts about sin. Why must blood be shed? Because of my sin. Why must the offering be slashed? Because I transgressed God's law. Why does God require this of all of God's people? 
The goat that would remove all of sin because of what I have done. I do hope you even sit in here tonight and you understand that you must personalize that problem. That the primary problem is not sin out there. The primary problem is about sin in here. And that leads to the third and significant central section of this text, which is the provision. You want to think about the Day of Atonement as a dramatic day in Israel's life and history. This drama that belonged to the day, it had this very noticeable flow to it. And so let me see if I can summarize a number of the paragraphs that are in front of you. Here's what would have happened in the high priest's march to the holy place. He began his journey of atonement outside of the temple. The text tells us, if you notice, in verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. The text is going to come back to those in a minute. But what he first must do is atone for his own sins. So you'll see verse 6, he's to offer a bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and his house. So what he would do? put on the priestly clothes after having washed himself. He would uh, take these animals that the text will go on to tell us lots fall on the goats as to what role they're going to play in the Day of Atonement. Once that sorted, once that settled, he would kill the bull. Then if you look through verse 11 through 14, he would take some of the blood of the bull, he would take burning coals, and he would take fragrant incense, and he would march for the first time in a year into the Holy of Holies. And the smoke would begin to fill the room. You need to understand that that smoke is a cloud uh, that prevents Aaron from seeing the theophany that is God's appearance in the Holy of Holies. Because no man can see God's glory and survive. And as the smoke is going up, as the coals are burning, he's to take the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Uh, This place of atonement. Then he was to go out. He was to take the ram that the lot said was to die, or the goat that the lot said was to die, and he was to kill the goat. Likewise, take blood. He would go back into the Holy of Holies, this smoke-filled chamber of God's awesome, dreadful presence. He would again sprinkle the mercy seat with blood. Then he would march out of the Holy of Holies and sprinkle other significant parts of the tabernacle complex with blood. And it was then... And only then that the day's drama reached its climax, what we could call the service of the scapegoat in verse 20 through 22. I'll give you some context even for these goats. Look back at verse 7 and 8. Aaron shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness. So you've got two goats designated. Kids, uh, these perhaps even cute looking goats. One is going to die because his blood is necessary for this day of atonement. The other is going to live but he's going to be cast outside the camp because his removal is necessary for atonement. So if you glance at verse 20 through 21, it tells us how this service of the scapegoat goes. The blood has been sprinkled and spread where it must. 
Aaron, the high priest, comes. He lays his hand, verse 21 say, hands on the head of the live goat. And there with his hands on the goat, he confesses all the sin of the people. Which is picturing this imputation of, of the sin from the people. The representative high priest from the people to the goat. Now I've read this text a number of times. And always wondered, how long were his hands on the head of that goat? Oh, was it a generalized confession of sin? Maybe something like we do in our morning service here at Redeemer. Maybe it was short, but still somewhat specific. Walking through that summary of God's moral law and the Ten Commandments and the ways in which through the last year the nation of Israel had broken those commandments specifically and particularly. Or maybe it was much more of a long confession of sin. Do you know how long it would take if you were to lay all of your sins, all of your iniquities, all of your transgressions before the Lord in this way. We would be here for a very long time, wouldn't we? We don't know how long it took, but after however long it took, you'll see what happens to this Azazel goat, this scapegoat. Verse 21 through 22 He shall put on then the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Wilderness, of course, for the ancient Israelite was a place of chaos. It was a place away from the sacred presence of God. And in a very striking picture, here is God saying, your sins have been removed and forgotten. When we were on vacation a few weeks ago, we were throwing frisbees with the kids. And uh, one of them, we were nearby this kind of rushing river uh, down a mountain. And he unintentionally threw this uh, frisbee into the river. And he wanted to go in and get it. And not only because it wasn't safe to go in and get it. I said, that thing is gone. It's never coming back. And annually, before Israel's eyes, was this picture your sin is gone. It's never coming back. Restore to fellowship with me because of the atonement of a scapegoat. And I trust you understand how it is impossible to make sense of the New Testament teaching on Jesus Christ if you don't understand the day of atonement. What do you have here but a shadow of imputation? The sins of one placed on another. And we're not the sins of God's people placed on the Lord Jesus Christ when he hung there on the cross. You don't have a a shadow here of what we call propitiation, the satisfaction of divine wrath against sin. Uh, We have also here, don't we, a shadow of expiation, the removal of sin, so that it is no more. I have a picture here, don't we, uh, of the high priest who not merely offers the sacrifice, but the high priest who himself is the sacrifice. You have a picture here of the blood of bulls and goats pouring forth from the tabernacle and temple for centuries and centuries. And it's there at the very foot of Jesus Christ as he hung at the cross at Calvary that that bloody river dried up once and for all because his blood was shed once and for all. So you got the goats, but then there's even a significant role. This bull is meant to play too. Verse 27, we're told this bull that was originally slain as Aaron and the other high priests eventually would go into the Holy of Holies. It said the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement 
and the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. The author to the Hebrews reflects on this in Hebrews chapter 13, saying that Jesus Christ was sent outside the camp that he might sanctify his people with his blood. It's the greatest story of atonement, isn't it? That has ever been uttered in human history. My kids, I wonder what you want to be when you grow up. When I was many of your age, if you had asked me that question, I would have said, depending on the day of the week, I want to be a professional soccer player or I want to be an astronaut. And it's that latter category that had me captivated for years and years with stories and books and films and interviews. And eventually I got old enough and I watched this movie that some of you surely have seen called Apollo 13 about that ill-fated mission to the moon. And of course, if if you know the story, uh, they don't land on the moon, but they're making it back from this trip that's gone awry. And the whole world was captivated at that time by what was happening with these American astronauts up in uh, the atmosphere. And and NASA's science was so precise at the time that they knew almost down to the, the second how long radio blackout would exist for as the astronauts made re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. And so some of you perhaps even were watching this live. I've talked to my dad about his experience of watching this live because it was the day when they were supposed to re-enter, come back to the Earth alive. The television cameras were fixated on a, a point in the sky. And everyone knew at what point they were supposed to come out alive as radio returned. And for an agonizing amount of time, 87 seconds past what NASA had predicted, people stared up into a blank sky wondering, are they going to come out alive? And 87 seconds later, they they did come out alive. Now, if you were an Israelite on the Day of Atonement, there would be a dominant question in your mind. Is he going to come out alive? Because glance back to what we're told in the text or it's telling us that this man is, is meant to only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. Because it was only in that Holy of Holies where the burnt offering of the Day of Atonement was to take place. So his march on the Day of Atonement began outside of the tabernacle complex. And then people would watch as he marched his way in. No one else was allowed in the complex. And then he went behind the curtain, he went behind the veil, and it was there, with bated breath, they wondered, is he going to come out alive? Actually, it became such a thing in Jewish culture that what they would do is they would tie a red rope around his foot as he marched into the Holy of Holies, because if he dropped dead in God's presence and the offering wasn't accepted, at least they could pull him out. But what would happen with great joy on their face, surely, is when they heard, when they saw when they experienced the high priest coming out alive, what did they know? Our sins are full, finally, freely now forgiven because of the work of the high priest. And isn't that true even of Jesus Christ? How do you know that the free, full, and final forgiveness of sin is possible in his atoning work? He came out alive. He rose again to defeat sin Forever. So what's God's people to do with this great story of atonement? Well, let's mention the three responses that our text gives briefly as we now close. It's first the response of remembrance. Notice verse 29. 
uh, we're told it shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, this day of atonement, if you skip down to verse 34, the same thing is said, isn't it? It shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in a year because of their sins. Uh, They remember that, didn't they, once a year? Here gloriously, even at Redeemer, we get to remember it. Of course, daily in our own devotion and study of the Lord's word and experience of life with God and his people, but certainly here in the morning service, Every single week, remembering through the Lord's Supper what atonement means and how it comes to us. But it's not just remembrance, it's also repentance. Because you'll see if you glance back up at verse 29, it uses this phrase of they shall afflict themselves or afflict them souls, their souls. It comes up also, you'll notice, in verse 31. You shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. That language of, of affliction, it's really just the language of repentance and fasting. And I, I trust you also know that observing the Lord's work of atonement ought to stir up within our hearts even more earnest repentance for our sin, confident knowing that he has covered its penalty and discipline. But there's also, thirdly, the response of rest. Not just remember, not just repent, but also rest. You see verse 31. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And isn't the atonement of Jesus Christ a solemn rest for you. Why? Because he's done everything that you should have done so that you can rest in what he's done knowing that your sins have been covered by his blood. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the precious and perfect blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sin that even when we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. And how joyful it is to know that he saves ungodly people like us. So help us to cling to him, even as we pray these things in his name. Amen.